Hello, welcome and thanks for tuning in. We're very pleased to have your company here on Search for Truth. This is your Bible teaching programme with Brian Johnston. It's talk number seven today in this series of ten programmes. And again, I remind you, in case it's the first time you've listened, that they're all about the pattern for Christian church life laid out for us in the New Testament mainly. But as we've seen, it's also there in the Old Testament. In this series, we're seeking to discover what God intended when New Testament Christian disciples began collective service for God. And it's also, of course, his will that we should continue that uh, because nothing has changed. Brian's called the talk today, though, a major transition. So let's see what that might mean with Brian. Okay, as we continue our brief history of God's house, we now want to explore a key transition that began to be indicated during the life of the Lord Jesus on earth. It was from that time that the physical house of God was transferred from the nation of Israel, and after Christ's ascension back into heaven, it was replaced with a spiritual house for disciples of all nationalities. In his teaching, and particularly in his judgments against the religious leaders of that time, Jesus began to make this impending change very clear. For example, in Matthew 23 and verse 37, he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. There's no doubt here that Jesus was referring to the Jerusalem temple, the one that had been rebuilt by those Jews who under Zerubbabel, Ezra and Nehemiah had returned from exile to rebuild on the same basis as before at Jerusalem. By the time Jesus visited this temple, it had been beautified by Herod the Great, although that had nothing at all to do with God's wishes or plans. And now Jesus was plainly saying that God was finished with that building. It would be left desolate of the divine presence. He would no longer honour or sanctify it by his presence. The Jews, through their religious leadership, had rejected Jesus as the Christ, so God was rejecting in turn their physical temple, and indeed closing the chapter on his dealings with them, for a while at least. Then Jesus also began to disclose what God's future plans were, especially those plans surrounding his house on earth. It's been plain to us so far, I trust, that this idea of God living on earth among a chosen, obedient people and their serving and worshipping him centred on that place of his residence is shown to be a major or central part of God's mainstream purpose with his human creation. And so God wasn't likely going to abandon all notion of it now, It would be transformed, not terminated. But what was it going to look like going forward? In one of his parables, spoken against the Jewish leaders, Jesus sharpens things as follows. In Mark 12 and 1 we read, He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the winepress and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent them another slave, and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and that one they killed. And so with many others, beating some and killing others. He had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, This is the heir. 
Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it's marvellous in our eyes. From this, we get the clear sense, do we not, that Jesus himself is the rejected stone whom he's talking about. Rejected, that is, by the Jewish religious nation builders. The picture of a vineyard, ever since the time of Isaiah chapter 5, had been in vogue as a metaphor for Israel as God's kingdom on earth, one from which God expected such fruits as righteousness, justice, faithfulness and obedience. Sadly, these had been in short supply throughout Israel's chequered history, and now their attitude towards the Christ whom God had sent represented an all-time low. Judgment was now inevitable. That judgment was the removal of kingdom status from Israel and a new beginning built around the same Christ figure whom they'd rejected. In Luke chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus goes further, because here he's explaining to his faithful disciples, so he says, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. So the thing that was being removed from Israel nationally, which we called a moment ago the kingdom status of Israel, was being transferred to these followers of Jesus and those who would succeed them on the same basis. This is indeed the language which the New Testament attributes to the early pioneers of the churches of God which started to form around the Mediterranean seaboard and hinterlands, beginning from Jerusalem, of course. It was from there that some of the apostolic representatives of this new movement of God proclaimed to the same opposing authorities... I'm reading from Acts 4 and verse 11 now. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. They were still speaking of Jesus, of course, and using the same terminology that Jesus himself had used. Peter had been the spokesperson then, and later, in the first Bible letter bearing his name, which the Holy Spirit would cause to be inspired and so included in our Bibles, he said, 1 Peter 2 verse 6, For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. The consistency and persistency of this same metaphor of Jesus as the most important stone in God's building is very noticeable. But what was this building which was anticipated as the replacement house for God on earth? It was now no tabernacle or temple or cathedral or abbey or any artifice that was the result of human ingenuity. In fact, it wasn't a building at all, at least not in physical terms. We are introduced instead to a spiritual counterpart of what had previously existed in Old Testament times. If we look at an adjacent verse from 1 Peter 2, we'll understand how Peter is extending the metaphor about a stone to more people now than Jesus. From verse 4, And coming to him as to a living stone, Peter says, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So what exactly is being said? What is this spiritual house made up of living stones? 
we don't have to look far to see what fills the pages of the New Testament as really the only candidate for what this could be. The living stones refer to those believers in the churches being established then by the apostles on their missionary journeys, of which the most famous are certainly those of Paul. But we shouldn't overlook real missionary travel and work by lesser-known men like Epaphras, whose work, as with that of others, led to church plantings as churches of God spread even as far as Europe in the account of the Acts of the Apostles. This all fits. Earlier in this series of studies, we defined biblically what those churches of God actually were, and later we hope to explore their integration with each other as sister churches, so that they really did form overall a spiritual house for God, or residence for him by his Spirit. But for now, it's sufficient that we concentrate on this most significant change point regarding God's long-term desire for a house on earth. Many people may dream of a second home these days, but this was something God meticulously planned for, that he should have a residence among his human creation, subject, of course, to them fulfilling his terms and conditions, for he is, after all, the holy God of heaven. But in the New Testament, we already see developing the same sad trend as was faithfully documented in the Old Testament. The story of God's house again repeats as a story of beginning, followed by decline, but again by God's grace there was the opportunity for subsequent restoration. How wonderfully it began in Acts chapter 2 with the apostles, and how from that time of Pentecost they laboured under God to establish and maintain faithful New Testament churches of God in every place. But read Revelation chapter 2 and 3, and the Lord's messages to the last remaining churches in Asia, and indeed also how Paul could say in Second Timothy 1, all who are in Asia turned away from me. This was nothing other, as you can see from the context, nothing other than a retreat from the teachings Paul and the other apostles had faithfully taught. And so this meant, without a doubt, that the spiritual house was in decline, like its Old Testament physical predecessor. Shortly afterwards, biblically recognisable churches of God went totally out of existence. Historians have written about the ensuing so-called Dark Ages, Dark because of the loss of spiritual light from God's word. But brighter times lay ahead in God's grace. Biblical truth began to be restored from the time of the Reformation until it once again became possible for there to be churches of God again today out of the same original biblical mould as the very first of these at Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2.
Now again, as usual, I remind you that with this series of talks, there's a transcript booklet containing all of them, and it's free. So if you'd like one or more, please tell us. Some listeners tell us that they use them in house group studies. Now I'm about to give you our contact details, so get your pen and paper to hand because here's our postal and our email address. Search for Truth, Church of God, Downing Drive, Leicester, LE5, 6LN, UK. I'll repeat that. Search for Truth, Church of God, Downing Drive, Leicester, LE5, 6LN, UK. And our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info. There are a number of ways you can access the many booklets and audio repeats for different subjects and studies which we've previously presented at、uh, Search for Truth. So you can absorb and enjoy these at your leisure. And each week, I remind you of different ways to obtain them. And one of the ways you can listen again is by audio podcast versions. On your computer, go to www.searchfortruth.podbean.com. And you can browse the list of previous talks, which are in categories, to assist you to find what you're looking for. And there are at least forty different titles of Search for Truth transcript booklets, which have been turned into e-books. And these are available at Amazon.co.uk/forward/slash/kindle-ebooks. Just type Search for Truth series into the search box, and you'll find them. Well, that's all we have for now. But many thanks once again for your interest in these programs. We do appreciate it. Next week, Brian talks about the hope of the Hebrews letter. That's the book of Hebrews towards the end of the New Testament in the Bible. I look forward to you joining us. But until then, very best wishes from Brian, David, our singers, and me, John. Goodbye, and may God richly bless you. <laughs>